My loves, I am beyond excited. Some of you with an ear to the digital news pipeline may already be aware, but after just over half a century, a team of three spanning three continents have finally cracked the code of the Zodiac Killer. For anyone with even a passing interest in true crime, code-breaking, and gumshoeing, this is a fascinating and thrilling break in a very famous and very old case. I will be linking a couple articles in the sources section of the show notes if you'd like to look and find out more. But it did inspire me this week to take a look into three other fascinating and intriguing stories of codes. So welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. Codes and ciphers have been used throughout history to pass secrets and information between allies, colleagues, conspirators, and beyond. A small info point, and one that I had to look up. The difference between codes and ciphers is that a code uses an arbitrary symbol in place of another, such as switching one letter for another, or a dot and a dash for a letter, such as in Morse code. A cipher uses an algorithm to change a message in its entirety into what appears as a random string of characters or pictographs. One period of time during which codes and ciphers seemed to be on everyone's radar, literally, was during World War II. From the code talkers to the Enigma machine, everyone had secrets to keep and information to pass. As an aside, If you are unfamiliar, definitely check out more information on the Code Talkers and the Enigma Machine, both of which are very cool and important bits of history. Our first story, however, begins roughly 70 years later, in a chimney, in 2012. One early November day in Surrey, England, David Martin was renovating his chimney. Perhaps with the weather getting a little colder, It seemed a great time to get things ready to stoke a cozy, crackling fire, after, of course, the flu was as fancy as Martin envisioned. Now, while he did not find a sooty Dick Van Dyke cloaked in song and charm, what he did find was grime, a likely cobweb or two, and some bird bones. As he got everything together to throw into the rubbish, He took a closer look at the bones and noticed something a little unusual. On first pass, it seemed like any set left from an unfortunate pigeon or starling that might have found its way into the chimney and sadly couldn't return to open air. However, as Martin peered closer, he saw upon one tiny skeletal leg a small red canister. Opening the canister... Inside was a brittle and aged piece of small rolled paper with the words pigeon service at the top, followed by a secret code containing 27 groups of five letters. For anyone who's curious, I'll put a picture of the code on our Instagram. 
David Martin realized he had a find on his hands and took it to the GCHQ, or Government Communication Headquarters. Once in the capable midst of the professionals, they were extremely confident that they likely wouldn't be able to solve the code. Oh. One of the organization's historians, Tony, first name use only due to top, top secret secrecy, named the reason that the sorts of codes used during many World War II operations were created to be used during particular missions and to be only understood by the senders and recipients. Which makes sense, since information was beyond worth its weight in gold, and while pigeons may have been often used, they were also often shot down and obtained by the enemy. For anyone who may not be totally caught up, as an aside, in our episode Small Things, there is a great story, biases personally aside, about a particularly brave World War II carrier pigeon named Sharon Mee, and I do think it's worth a listen. Sadly, this particular pigeon never made it to its final landing spot, thus the message never being received. What was able to be determined was that the note did contain two pigeon identification numbers on the message, although it's not clear which would be referencing our dear deceased. Plus, with around 250,000 pigeons having been used during the war by all services, it's a bit of a feather in a flock of pigeons situation. Experts do at least think that the code was done in one of two ways, one being with a one-time pad, which is a system where a specific key is applied that allows the message to be read. In this instance, if the key is applied truly randomly, the code may be completely unbreakable. The other likely possibility is that the code was based on a specific codebook developed for a particular operation so that the most information could be conveyed via the shortest message possible. Which actually brings us a month later to December and a continent away in Canada. The case was definitely an intriguing one that piqued a lot of interest, including that of Gord Young from Peterborough in Ontario. Young, who is the editor of the local Lakefield Heritage Research History Group and recipient of an inherited World War I codebook, sat down with the code and said book and claims to have cracked the code in under 20 minutes. Young states his findings that the note was written by Sergeant William Stott, a Lancashire fusilier who had been dropped into Normandy to report on the German position. Due to Stott's spelling of sergeant with a J, which was used up through World War I, Young says he was likely trained by a World War I artillery observer spotter, and that many of the acronyms will be similar to those used during World War I. And World War I relied heavily on acronyms, due to the radio transmitters of the time being run on batteries that, at the longest, might last 30 minutes. The GCHQ have said they aren't committing to announcing the code broken yet, but they are, at least at the time of the story, interested to see Young's results. Both codes and carrier pigeons were a vital way of passing information during World War II, and played integral parts in shifting the tides of a massive war. 
As far as our unfortunate friend in the chimney, Young says the note stated two pigeon ID numbers because Stott had sent an identical note out on two different pigeons, hoping at least that one would make it. And hopefully one did, since we know that, well, one didn't. Open your eyes, what can you see around? Wind of the open sky, over the siren sound This is a dream, getting the royal scar Holding a diamond blade, throwing it far Now, as much as I tried, I really did, to break away from World War II its hold on codes is so strong. And when I read about the following codebreaker, I knew I had to tell the story. Many will probably at least have a passing familiarity with the name Alan Turing, if nothing else from the Turing test, in which we pit ourselves against our robotic nemesis to see if they really have learned to mimic us in every way when chatting online. <laughs> One of his known contributions, alongside his tests, was for code-breaking during World War II. Along, of course, with having a movie later made of his life in which he would be played by Benedict Cumberbatch. We'll start with the writing crop. However, I would like to share the story of someone who should have just as much notoriety on the lips of history, despite having her work remain classified for decades, and others having taken credit for her achievements. And that would be Elizabeth Friedman. Born in 1892, Elizabeth, with an E instead of an A due to her mother's strong objections to her ever being referred to as Eliza, was the youngest of nine children and was said to be energetic, impatient, strongly opinionated, and holding a, quote, strong disdain for stupidity. She worked in hairdressing, seamstressing, and fashion consulting, then ultimately graduated with a major in English literature from Hillsdale College in Michigan, only one of two siblings who were able to attend college. With a passion for Shakespeare and languages, she found a job at the Newberry Research Library in Chicago. The librarian who interviewed her made a call to Colonel Fabian, a wealthy textile merchant, and told him of the, at the time, Miss Smith's, love for Shakespeare and aptitude for many things. The colonel was intrigued and contacted Elizabeth, telling her that he would like her to join working at his estate at Riverbank, where she would assist the Gallup sisters from Boston at proving Sir Francis Bacon had authored Shakespeare's plays by using an internally contained cipher. Elizabeth agreed, and at that point became part of a staff that until the creation of the Army's Cipher Bureau, was the only facility capable of, quote, exploiting and solving enciphered messages. It was also during this time that Elizabeth met and married her husband, William Friedman. In 1921, the two moved to Washington, D.C. to work for the War Department. She became the chief cryptologist for the U.S. Treasury Department. And between 1926 to 1930, she decoded 20,000 rum runner shortwave smugglings per year. 
helped settle a dispute between Canada and the United States regarding ownership of the I'm Alone ship that was sunk by the Coast Guard, which, questionable name, using her skills at analyzing radio messages, and deciphered a code written in Mandarin, even though she didn't speak Chinese, to crack an opium smuggling case for the Canadian government. As World War II began to unfold, what would become one of her most famous code-cracking cases would be the deciphering of the letters of Velvalee Dickinson, which led to Dickinson's conviction as a Japanese spy, all with a pencil and paper. What makes her truly amazing, other than the fact she is considered the first woman codebreaker, is that she was self-taught. She wasn't a mathematician or educated in codes. She essentially taught herself to solve these messages without access to or knowing the key. In addition, she helped invent what is now the modern science of code writing and cryptology that is the basis for so much of what is used in our daily lives to keep us and our information safe. Of course, her achievements being lost to time isn't completely by accident. During World War II, the FBI were responsible for catching Nazi spies in South America, which happened to be what Elizabeth and her team were tracking. As they were all, you know, on the same team, Elizabeth would provide messages and materials to the FBI so they could solve additional messages themselves. Once these Axis networks were destroyed, however, J. Edgar Hoover launched a big publicity maneuver claiming that his FBI was solely responsible for winning this war on practically domestic soil, including the production of a film to show troops called The Battle of the United States, as well as articles in popular magazines. Elizabeth, nor her team, got even a side nod, so for years, some of her most demanding work would go completely unacknowledged. That is at least changing, as in 2017, author Jason Fagon, I'm so sorry if I'm saying your name incorrectly, wrote a biography of the amazing Elizabeth Friedman called The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. And this is a book, of course, that I think would be worth a read. And speaking of books, and going back to Elizabeth's first code-breaking job, she and her husband would also later co-write a book in which they would say that there was indeed no ciphers within Shakespeare's work. for you veers away from the Great Wars and a little further back in time, just a little bit, and is one of my favorites when it comes to unsolved texts. This is one that some of you who, like me, who steep yourselves in all things odd and curious, may already be familiar with, but loves, allow me to present the Voynich Manuscript. A very, very old book that first appears in historical record in the late 16th century as having been owned by Rudolf II of Germany, 
word on the street at the time being that it may have been written by 13th century English scientist Roger Bacon, it moved from there to Georgius Bartius, a Progian alchemist who also uh, didn't get it. When Bartius's heir inherited it, he sent it to an Egyptian hieroglyphs expert because, well, strange text, why not? However, Following that, it disappeared for 250 years until it was purchased by a rare books dealer, Wilfred Voynich, its now namesake, in 1912. So, what is it? Well, the book itself is a little over 9 by 6 inches, or 23.5 by 16.2 centimeters, with 240 remaining pages. A few have gone missing over the years of its existence. The contents are divided into four sections, starting with an herbal section with strange writing and vivid drawings of plants. At least, they seem to be plants. No one can really identify what plants they might be, but they are very botanical-esque. Next up is the astrological section, with page foldouts that reveal celestial charts that well, don't match up to any known calendar. In addition, there are astrological wheels with drawings of nude women. The next section is the Baal-Neological, or Therapeutic Bath, section where there are, you guessed it, more nude drawings. These ladies are having a grand time, riding jets of water, holding rainbows with their hands, even hanging out on a giant pair of ovaries. The last section is the Pharmacological section, that shows more, probably, plants, and then goes into pages upon pages of writing, and therein lies the code. Well, so to speak, because no one has been even remotely able to crack it yet, though it's pretty universally agreed that it appears to have some sort of system behind it. Even today, there is a thriving movement to solve its mysteries, and people feel like they keep coming close. What we do at least know now is that in 2009, carbon testing showed its creation likely dates between 1404 and 1438. It is currently housed among Yale's rare book collection, and you can view an online copy yourself. Link, of course, in the show notes. There are so many theories on the manuscript, though, ranging from various artists and great minds of the time, including da Vinci, although the aforementioned carbon dating does set him off a little in the timeline. People think it may be a hoax, someone suffering from a mental disorder, or even alien visitors. Well, we may not know until someone is at least able to make some semblance of sense out of it. Until then, though... It remains a fantastically strange mystery. Thank you so much for joining me through the Fantastically Strange. I hope that you've enjoyed our journey. 
One more small note on the Voynich manuscript. I only went on a surface skim of the great depths that this mystery holds. If you're interested in hearing more, a lot more, in an amazing and thorough way, check out the podcast Astonishing Legends. They not only take a very deep dive into the manuscript, but are a blast to listen to. As for me, come visit me for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantasticallystrange and Twitter at fantasticoddpod. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself and am so honored to be able to bring you stories about topics I'm passionate about. And your ear means the world to me. If you do want to support the show, I wouldn't say no to you visiting patreon.com slash rocketfox, where you can get early access to weekly episodes, bonus content including outtakes and more, as well as goodies from my other work. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thanks again, and I can't wait to see you next time.